when we watch The Wizard of Oz, it's such an intriguing movie because for me, for how it ends, it ends at this moment where they get where they're going. And I'm not sure that they were ever intended to actually get to the finish line. I think they were supposed to be afraid or stopped by the witch or things were supposed to happen where they were not going to think they were enough. I don't have a brain, I don't have a heart, I don't have enough courage. Everything was set in their way to inhibit them from crossing the finish line and getting to the place where they had imagined their dream to be. So a good American is loving this story. These people are overcoming the odds and they are arriving at the place where everyone said they're not supposed to arrive. I did not even notice that he had climbed over all the views. Um, and now they're there. And they come up the steps and they see the giant face. And it's scary. And then the story just takes this crazy twist, this crazy turn, where Toto, the little dog who is not consumed with any of the story, but is just completely himself the whole time, pulls the side curtain back and reveals that nothing was as it seemed. And now, out of a lashing out, the dude who's pretending to be the scary face says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And it's like the first fictional story of Christian deconstruction that we ever bump into. And I heard some, a preacher say the other day, if you're deconstructing your faith, then you've never had a real encounter with Jesus. Because if you had a real encounter with Jesus, you wouldn't need to take and examine and look more closely at the things that have shaped all of this around us. And yet we find that the curtain's been pulled back for so many of us. And a lot of what chapel is, is not an abandoning of everything. It's not a tearing down of, of every wall that's, that's been put up or changing every core belief we've ever had. Many of them have changed, but it's a restructuring of some things that are important to us when it comes to our understanding of the gospel. And so with that, when we step out in faith and we move towards things like helping someone own a home, not with an agenda for anything other than we believe that everyone in heaven will own a home. When I was a kid, I was actually taught that I would have a giant house on a paved street of gold in heaven, and I just took that for granted. And then I realized Jesus actually says, pray that things will be like that on earth. And so we've taken a practical step to move in that direction. And when we did... And when I did, I don't know if you know this about me, but when I did, I started to be questioned by other Christian leaders around me. What's your motivation? Why are you doing this? Are you just justice-minded? Are you trying to lead people to Jesus? Or what? And I, my, my response started to become, I've just simplified it down. I was told as a kid that I would have a big mansion in heaven. 
And on earth, there are people that don't even have little mansions. And Jesus told me to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on this earth like it's done in heaven. So I have a responsibility to live as I pray and to move in those directions. I've learned things like that from my friend Keith, who's leading that charge and has led that charge six other times and ended generational poverty. That's the miracle. We're not talking about like when I've prayed for somebody on the street and their broken hand gets healed. We're talking about ending generational poverty like that through engaging in what heaven is doing. So, all of that to say, I want to process a little verse in 1 John with you. And again, I've chosen to not stand up there, even though I have the degree that would tell me I can stand up there, because we can disagree and we can interpret this. We can bind and loose the scriptures together, which is, which is what would happen when a young man would become a rabbi and he would be given the power in Jewish custom to bind and loose the scriptures, to say, to say this simple statement, you've heard it said this, but I tell you the truth. Meaning I'm going to interpret this differently than the way that you've heard it. And, and, and then Peter, who's given all the authority, passes that on to us later after Jesus starts this new church. And so in 1 John, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 5. And I'm going to read a little bit. And then I want to process some of that with you. Because tonight is about you and me taking a sigh of relief and thanking Jesus for this thing that he did and this new path that God has put us on. You guys good with that? You guys all look funny in your masks. All right. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus, his son cleanses us from all sin. That terrified me as a kid. And I was a Baptist kid. So I knew Bible verses better than all of my Nazarene and Reformed and Methodist kids in my school. Because Baptists memorized this thing. Not, not like Jewish kids, but we memorized it and we were like, we know more than you and I can throw verses at you. And this verse terrified me. If I claim to be in him and yet walk in darkness, I lie and I deceive myself. But if I walk in the light as he is in the light, I have fellowship with other people in the blood of Jesus, purifies me from all sin. I was raised believing that Jesus died for my sins and forgave me. And then this says I have to walk in the light or else. And so I would start to wonder and think, am I okay? Am I good? 
how does this end? And I was the type of young person who was going to process this and dig deep until I found the curtain and could pull it back because something wasn't right. I was being told that Jesus on the cross accomplished all and that when I began a relationship with Christ, my life was beginning to be whole and yet I was constantly afraid that if I wasn't living in this this light, whatever it is, which I had translated into morally right living based on how the preacher that Sunday had talked about it, then I was in trouble. And for a young teenage boy, that's a dangerous thing because I was far from perfect in my head and in my thoughts and with my eyes. And I was terrified all the time. And so I pretended to be in the light and hoped that God would forgive me at some point. And I failed to continue reading until I was in college. And then I read verse 8, 15 years later, that says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. And I realized this guy named John who wrote this, he was making a point to me, Rod Tucker. He was saying, living in the light Rod, isn't about sinning or not sinning or going to church because like you feel good this week or, or going to a church service and waiting through the first like three worship songs in guilt until you finally feel forgiven enough to sing the third one or the fourth one because you finally pressed in to God again and, and now you're in the light. John wasn't talking about creating these weird little games we play in our head to try to make ourselves good enough for God. John was saying, if you live in the light, you have fellowship and you will acknowledge, you will understand that Jesus has forgiven you. And that totally shifted in my mind to the point where when I was like 25, I wrote a book about it. And if you go to Amazon, I'm just kidding. Uncovered the truth about honesty and community, which dug me in to peel back the curtain more and more and more. And I started to talk about this with people and started to talk about this with Christians and pastors. And I started to hear, do not be afraid uh, or pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And I was like, no, the man is behind the curtain. John's saying something different. And you realize, oh, there's a call for us to live authentic, honest, transparent lives understanding that Christ has forgiven us, not feeling the need to hide in shame or guilt or perform in front of each other, but be able to share our struggles and our questions and our wonderings and our, and our sin, understanding that Christ has forgiven us all. That's what the cross is for. And if we can somehow embrace that, we'll have fellowship with each other. And I'll be able to have grace for Anna. And I'll be able to have grace for Frank when they cannot have grace for themselves because we have true 
intimate relationship with each other because of what Jesus did. And when that happens, then this is the switch. When that happens, you stop staring at yourself. You get out of this shame cycle. I messed up, so now I commit to try really hard, and I'm going to do that for a while, and then all of a sudden I'm going to feel like I'm back to where I was, and so then I'm going to feel terrible about myself and believe that I'm screwed up, and then I'm going to commit to try really hard again. And, and we get in, in those cycles over and over and over and over and over again. Welcome to like the Christian life before the curtain has been pulled back. And when you pull that curtain back, the scarecrow realized that he always had a brain, the tin man always had a heart, and the lion always had the courage. And Jesus died and rose from the dead so that you could be here right now and you could say this, I am forgiven. I am being made whole. I am not the same person I was a year ago, and I am better because of what God is doing in my life, not because of what I'm doing in my life, because of what God is doing in my life, and because God is in charge of all of that and just making it happen, I can now turn my focus away from myself, and I can look at my neighbor, and I can start to pray for my neighbor, Lord... Let your kingdom come and let your will be done in my neighbor's life, just like it's done in heaven. And when we begin to pray that prayer, we begin to live differently. You will never come here and hear me tell you how to, the three steps to, the thing that you need to do is, what you will hear is what the disciples proclaimed and what John was saying. God is up to stuff in your life. The biggest thing he's up to is forgiving you and making you whole. And you do not need to be there today. God will get you there. And your job is to open your eyes and look out the window, stop staring in the mirror, and begin to bring God's kingdom to people who have yet to experience God's kingdom. Tuesday night at Chess Club, which if I was preaching in Ann Arbor or Rockford or something, I would tell the whole story of how Chess Club started so we could cry together and, you know, be motivated, but you guys know why Chess Club started, to combat gun violence. A young man named Dre walks into Chess Club. He'd never been there. He comes in with a guy named V, and V says to me, he doesn't know how to play chess. Will you teach him how to play chess? So I sit down with Dre, the genius that I am, and I start to try to teach someone who's never played chess how to play chess. And as you can imagine, it's going normal. I explain a piece, 
he kind of gets it. I explain another piece, he kind of gets it. I explain another piece, he kind of gets it. I ask him how the first piece moves, he doesn't know. So I get through all the pieces and I look over and national master Tim McGrew is in the room, former state champion. And I say, hey Tim, I've tried my best. Will you teach him chess? Tim goes, sure, that's why I'm here. He stops his blindfolded game or whatever he's doing, owning someone. Comes and sits down with Dre and spends 30 minutes playing chess with a young man who's never played chess. Tim looks up at me and says, all right, Rod, he's good. He knows how to play chess. Next week, I want to do some science and math with him, though. I'm like, okay, great. Do whatever you want. Tim says, hey, Dre, go sit down and play Rod a game. And I'm like, Tim, come on, man. I've been doing this for 30 years, bro. I sit down, I move my piece compassionately towards Dre because now he must be baptized by fire. And I find myself struggling to play this kid because Tim McGrew loved his neighbor like he loved himself. I'm done with the short-term trip miracles. I'm done with, I'm not saying I won't pray for somebody to be healed on the street. That's awesome when God does that stuff. But I am done with stuff that we do to make us feel like good Christians. And we are now, because the curtain has been pulled back, fully aware that we are meant to give all of the power in us to our neighbors. So much so that they are transformed in the same ways we are being transformed. And only then can we have fellowship. So listen to John. If you say that you walk in the light, or you have a relationship with him, and you, yet you walk in darkness with your eyes closed, unable to see your neighbor. You lie to yourself, and the truth is not in you. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with each other. You have fellowship with Dre and Tim. And then you realize that the blood of Jesus purifies us all. That is our call, to participate in what God is doing. And the way that you get there, if you're not there, tonight, the way that you get there is to say this, I'm forgiven. There's no guilt over me. There's no shame over me. God has taken care of it all for me. He has opened up the path to wholeness for me, and God is taking me down that road, and He will not stop taking me down that road, and He will never cease to take me down that road, and I will become more complete and more complete and more whole until the day that I wind up on that street of gold with an actual mansion, whatever you think that is. 
the reason God has taken responsibility for that is so that you and I can love our neighbor. And that's what we're trying to do. Jesus, thank you that we can worship together. Thank you that we can spend some time in chapel. Thank you that there are little kids here learning that church is not an entertainment land, but it is a time to live in peace with each other and turn our eyes on you. And I thank you so much that we have the opportunity to close our weeks out before we go to our last day of work on Friday, to close our weeks out focused on why we're here and why we do what we do, because you love us so much. In Jesus' name, amen.